Gavin Wood's Countdown Podcast, proudly brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hi, this is Gavin Wood, and welcome to this Countdown Podcast. It is always a huge pleasure to chat with one of your favourite singer-songwriters in the business. He was inducted into the ARIA Hall of Fame back in 2007 and was awarded the Order of Australia in 2018. He's done just about everything. All over the world, he's one of the greatest singer-songwriters Australia has ever produced. And of course, now he's on the world stage. Let's get talking with Brian Cadd, AM. Hi, this is Brian Cadd, and you're listening to Gavin Wood's Countdown Podcast. Brian Cadd in Woodstock. Hello. Hello, my boy, and you're in uh, downtown Melbourne. Now, how far away are you living from the original Woodstock paddock? Oh, quite some 50 miles, because Woodstock didn't finish up being in Woodstock. Woodstock, at the last moment, was moved to a place called Bethel to Max Yazgan's farm, Max Yazgan's farm. And, and everyone just assumed that it was on in Woodstock, and it just has gone like that for 50 years. But if you come here to Woodstock, you've got to drive another 50 miles further to where the actual valley was. Hence all the footage of all the people walking. Well, well that's what happened. There's 400,000 people. And in the end... Most of it was mud and rain and stuff, even though it was summer. And people just got out, parked their cars and locked them up and just started walking. So in the end, there was probably 100,000 people on those little roads all walking to Woodstock. It was quite an amazing thing. And they tried to get it up and uh, after all these years, but, uh, you know, people have moved on, haven't they? I think so. It was a bit of a hard call because all the people that were there, you know, back in, in the day... And all the people like you and yeah. me who would associate with all that all desperately wanted it to be like it was. And, you know, it couldn't be because there was not enough of us. So it had to include hmm. other artists. So, you know, it got to the point where it included Jay-Z and Miley Cyrus and that and everything. So it, 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 yeah. it had to evolve. It lost focus, but it actually had to evolve. It was ever going to make any money in the end. Bureaucracy is what brought it down. It was just the fact that the local councils were so terrified of another half a million people that they just wouldn't go for it. I'm speaking with Brian Cadd. Now, Brian, um, I've, I've mentioned your Order of Australia. Congratulations. And I've also mentioned in the intro that uh, how you were inducted into the uh, ARIA Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, two great achievements in your musical career. And then they're not the ones that... You know, you normally associate with a career. I mean, you might get songwriter of the year or you might, you know, get album of the year or something, you know, which people who have been around as long as me, you're going to get one of those at some point. But to do something like getting an AM or being in the Hall of Fame, there are two much more, you know, amazing things to happen to you. And both of those occasions were things when I was thinking, I was standing there during the moment thinking, my God, I'm, you know, just a little old piano player from Perth. <laughs> and this bloke's pinning a medal on me, you know, or whatever. Uh, it, it is, and what's really important about it is that it's about, it's usually about peer awards, you know, in the sense that, you know, when you get an AM or, or an IM or something like that, it's based on the fact that the industry contributes in terms of voting for you to get it. 
So it's from your peers. Mm, so yes, of course. And they're always the best ones to get. Now, uh, Brian, let's go right back to a, a very young Brian Cad uh, over in Perth. Is that where you grew up? Yep, born and bred in Perth. Uh, bred at least up until about 14 or 15. When did you make the move east? Um, my father was in the public service and um, he didn't have a degree or anything like that. And if you didn't and you wanted to progress... Every time a, 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 any kind of a gig was offered anywhere, you put your hand up for it, and he was that guy. Yeah. So the first thing we did was we left Perth for Hobart. I know, imagine what that was like. And it turned out to mm. be a wonderful couple of years of my life, and I joined what was probably the first real pop band that played weekend. We didn't actually play a lot. We rehearsed a lot, but we'd play every now and again, mm. you know, in some local hop and we'd play at school or whatever. And then by the time I got to be, I think, about 18, 17, I think I was, when I finally arrived in Melbourne, did a, a very bad couple of years at school and finished up in a jazz band um, and then went, mm-hmm. went on and on and finished up, you know, in the group and next year and stuff. So, yeah. So, so, so when did you pick up piano? When did you start learning to play the piano? Very early, actually. As it turns out, I had a wonderful uh, auntie, Auntie Margaret, who, and I don't know where she would have possibly learnt this, but she actually played piano, the, the rolling bass piano, you know, the woogie-woogie piano. Yeah, she played it like that, which was sort of the old-timey 20s and 30s. Now, it turns out at the same time, there was a guy called Jerry Lee Lewis who went, so I used to hang with her and she showed me her left really just showed me her left hand. So I was right. my first my first EP was uh Jerry Lee Lewis, of course. And I, and it was all that left hand and just a bit of ding 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 in the top. And I learned all those things yeah. absolutely. And I was probably only I don't know, maybe eight or nine or ten or something. Maybe not even that old. Right. By the time I was 10 or so, I was starting to learn music properly. We, you're a lot younger than me, but in my age group, a lot of houses had pianos in the you know, old piano. Everyone had an old piano. No one ever mm-hmm. played them. Upright, upright pianos. Yeah, old upright piano. Gloriously out of tune music. Yeah. And we had one. And I used to just, as a little kid, even like six or seven, I used to sit there and apparently, according to my mother, I used to be able to pick out tunes, so I could actually, which we didn't know what it was, but it was actually being able to play by ear. So that combined yeah. with my auntie Margaret and the fact that by the time I got to be about 10 or 11, I started to really actually learn music properly. Um, that gave me my start. <laughs> now tell me, Billy Joel always says that when he was around that age, he was locked inside doing scales while all his mates were out in the street, you know, kicking footballs and having a great time. Did that same scenario happen to you? No. Very lucky. What happened was I, I, I had been teaching, I had been getting taught, you know, proper lessons and all the things, and I had to go for an exam. And the given piece was fair release by Beethoven. And yeah. I could play everything up until the bridge, what I call the bridge in the middle section. And I could read it all up until then. But after that, when it got to the bridge part, I couldn't read it. 
And I was really freaked out. I mean, I knew what it was supposed to sound like, but I didn't, the, word, the, the notes didn't make much sense. So we get in there, the gamut gets up to that piece, and she says, okay, so you played for release, and I ripped through the first part, playing it exactly like the music, because I knew how to do that. And then we got to the bridge, and I realised I didn't really know. So I ad-libbed. And I, I probably might be the only person who's ever ad-libbed Beethoven, but I did. And I could see out of the corner of my eye, she's writing furiously in the, in the thing. And I finished up, yeah. and she said, thanks very much, and she was a bit shell-shocked. And I went off. And the next week, my mother was summoned to music lessons with me. And Faith Finnecombe was her name. She's a lovely old gal. And she sat us both down and she said, I think in view of uh, what's been happening, you know, with, the, with the, you know, the examination and everything, I'd like to suggest that Brian's probably not going to be a classical pianist and he probably is wasting his time doing this. He should go out and find some people to play with and do some other stuff. So actually she saved my life because if I had kept... She did you a favour. Oh, enormous favour because otherwise I would have been locked into these piano lessons and I would have given up ultimately... You know, I was sick of it almost already. So it was an amazing thing to happen. Wow. So let's get to your first big success, of course, probably the group, or did you have one before that? The group was the first commercial success I had. Hmm. I was with a band called the Jackson Kings in Melbourne. Right. And and with Jackson Kings with me was a young kid called Ronnie Charles. Great And we were signed to CBS for some reason. God knows why. And we had a single that didn't do very well. But we used to tour with the group, the group, in its right. original format. Yeah, I remember that. Anyway, we were, yeah, it's with Max, uh, no, no, Peter McKetty and Peter Bruce. And the biggest and the best guys. in Africa, wasn't it? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Bit and, embarrassing. And Yes, I know. <laughs> and of course, I'm not touching it, incidentally. Yeah, anyway, sure. so we, could, we went on the road with them a lot, and they, we really got on well. So when the two Peters left for London, then Ronnie and I joined the group, and right. I was 20 years old, Dude. and that was the beginning of, of it all, really. Yeah, and that was huge. I mean, the group, Woman, You're Breaking Me, all those great songs, it was such a tight band, and you won Hoadley's, didn't you, and, and won a trip to London? Is that is that correct? <laughs> yes. Well, that's exactly right. 1967, the... the the Twilight to the Lang, the Lang, won it in 1966. Yeah. And then we won it right. the next year. Um, and it, That's well, a great achievement. I mean, that's you're the biggest band in Australia. That's, that's right. I mean, people came from Geelong. You know, people came from all around Australia. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and Parkinson always disputes the fact that, that we won. He said he should have won. But anyway... Um, we, we yeah, joke, we've you joked. don't pick a fight with him. No, we've joked about it for 50 years. But uh, the result was that we had, we got a, a trip to England. What they didn't really emphasise was it was on a, an Italian liner, which in our case was the Castel Felici, which was going home. To, it was going to London and it was going to Italy and it was going to be scratched. And we didn't tell us that. Oh, dear. So... We had six weeks on a truly leaky boat, and oh. and we got to London, and it was amazing because we landed there in 1967, and we lived 
in Chelsea off Kings Road. Can you imagine what yeah. that was like for us? You know, five oh, guys. That's Carnaby Street. That's it. That, that that was the epicenter of the world at that stage, wasn't it? For for music, <laughs> popular was, music. It was. It was. It was so exciting. And even if you know, we didn't. I don't know how much we had going on for us. Probably not very much. Well, certainly not initially. But I can remember walking down Kings Road. We only had one set of good clothes. Ronnie Charles will tell you this. We went out and bought these fabulous one set. Everything else was dreadful. Right. So on Saturday mornings, we get all poofed up and dressed up and put on our gear, and we'd go up to Kings Road, and we'd just go up and down Kings Road. We'd go into the King's Arms. We didn't have any money, so we couldn't buy anything. Yeah. But we, we right. everyone was swanning up and down Kings Road. And I swear to God this is true. There was a place on Kings Road, there was a pharmacy, and uh, we were walking past this pharmacy, and out of the, um, there's a line in the song, uh, Chelsea Drugstore, right? So we're passing the Chelsea mm-hmm. Drugstore, and out the front door walks, um, Mick Jagger, and they had speakers on the outside of the thing, and they were playing. You can't always get what you what, what you want. Uh, now that was like oh man, an epiphany that's, right there. That's, that's yeah, that's incredible. Hi, this is Brian Cat, and you're listening to Gavin Wood's Countdown Podcast. Was it a few years in London, and what happened? It was a couple of years, and oddly enough, we got picked up by a guy called Ken East. And he only had us and one other act. And the other act that he was developing was a younger guy, slightly young guy, and he was just starting to make his first record. And his name was David Bowie. Oh, dear. For this brief cosmic moment, we and he were managed by the same guy. That's insane. (laughs) That looks good on the CV. It certainly does. And, you know, we've always said that we gave him the necessary leg up for him to get started. Of course, of course. Obviously recorded a, a couple of uh, singles over there? Well, we did, but it was very strange. It was in the, it was in the um, uh, Humperdinck era. Oh, yes. And what happened was that it all went through a publishing company, and the publishing company saw Ronnie Child and heard him and said, oh, no, these guys can have a big hit. In those days... You didn't actually play on your own records. Very few people did. Yeah, like the monkeys and all so that. So they would take, yeah, yes. Yeah, so they took Ronnie, and I think I got to play a bit of piano. And they found a song, an Italian song hmm. called "What's the Good of Goodbye." Right. Thank you so much. Ooh. And and we recorded this, and of course it went out and went nowhere, and we were fed up, and the relationship stopped. But through the easy beats. They encouraged us to just go out and play. Right. And for about 18 months or so, we had this little van, and we went up and down the M1 and played everywhere there was electricity. And it was it was really fun. I mean, we didn't make any money much. Yeah. I don't even think we got any chicks, really, but, but we had a lot of fun. And I think it got that whole bit out of our system so that when we came back to Australia, ultimately, because we just couldn't afford to live there, mm. We were inspired to go into the second half of the group, which gave us such a lovely way in that that other album. Mm. And it was it was a great couple of years in my life, really. All right, so you came back to Australia, and obviously the group 
broke up, and and then Australia's first supergroup was formed, and uh, and this is this is right in my wheelhouse because this is what got me into you know music and being a DJ and all of that. You know, "Show Me the Way" is is still probably one of my all time favourite songs. Oh, thank you, and, and and that happened really. That happened a bit after the Axiom thing, but but I'm so glad you like it because that was the transition out of Axiom into the solo thing. Well, what happened with Axiom was that Shark had just come back from England after the Twilights broke up. That's right, after after Esperanto or something. He formed a band called Esperanto and then that broke up and then he came home, right? Just, yeah. And he, anyway, so he arrives in, in, in Australia and he's got nothing to do. And Moody and I, Tom Moody and I, get invited to Molly's place. He used to have these little wild parties. He still does it. I mean, he had these wild parties. Oh, they've, they've slowed down a little bit lately, mate. Yeah, they're in the morning now. Yes. Morning melodies. That's right. But still the intent is there. Anyway, we went along one night and, and Sherrick and I got talking and he said, oh, you know, I really want to go back to America. And I said, you know, I really want to go back to England. And I said, yeah, Don and I want to as well. He said, well, why don't we form a band? Right. And literally... In the same room was a guy called Doug Lavery, who had been, who was still with the Valentines at that point. So we sort of took that as a sign, and we all had a bit of a chat and a beer the next few days. And we eventually poached uh, Chris Stockley from Camp Act, and that that formed Axiom, the first original Axiom. Did you get Don Lebler from the uh, Brisbane Avengers? <laughs> yeah, but that was after. After uh, Doug Lavery left. Right, okay. We had uh, Arkansas Grass with Doug. And right on the cusp of Little Ray of Sunshine, Doug left. For, for, he had an offer in America. And Don Lebler joined us. So Don played with us from Little Ray of Sunshine onwards. The Gavin Wood Countdown Podcast is proudly brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives every day of the year. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. I got to tell you, Brian, when you mention Arkansas grass, you know, a little ray of sunshine, and you play them every show you do, they are such great songs. You still must love doing them. Oh, they're like kids. You know, all the songs are, you know. Yeah. That's why yeah. people say to me, you must get so sick of this, and it's 50 years and you're still doing Arkansas grass. But they are such a part of me, and part of all this, and. The thrill of it is to know that, you know, I'm still up here, I'm still singing it, and looking down at the audience and all the people in the audience know the words and they sing along. Mm, and mm. there's a connection there that spans all those years, you know, <laughs> even though we're the great years now. But nevertheless... With the Beatles albums, you know, we used to wait, you know, with nervous nervousness for the next album to hit brashes, and, and we'd wear out three copies of the album. So my argument with all the music programmers was, don't just play three of the Beatles hits from that album, play every track, because every track was just as big as the hits. Oh, yeah. And every track was known by everyone in the audience. You know, now they just say, yeah. oh, well, we'll play Chris Stapleton. Everyone knows three big hits Chris has had. But I doubt mm. whether they could name anything else on any of the albums, unless they were... Die Hard fans. In those days, everyone was a Die Hard fan. 
everyone knew everything about yes, every course. Beatles album, every Stones album, every Kinks album. You know, album tracks, as you say, were at least as important as singles. Now, the good thing about why I really, uh, well, when I swam in your pool in LA, which is a great thrill for me back in the eighties, but uh, I've always <laughs> I've always admired you because you haven't stopped. You've always remained contemporary. You've always, you know, you're always writing songs. Uh, you just recently put out an album that was uh, that was produced uh, by by some really good players in Nashville, um, and, and you just keep going. Is that the Australian way? I'm not sure it's Australian way. I do think so because in some respects, because we started off behind the eight ball. You know, we weren't England and we weren't America. And if you weren't either of those countries, sure. you were already way down there. And the first years of our existence in terms of pop music was absolutely imitary. We just imitated everything that was going on everywhere else. You know, it wasn't until the mid-60s, probably, when, you know, young bands like us, decided that you know, we could write a kink song. We, you know, they weren't that good. We said, why don't we have a go? You know, why, instead of doing a kink song, why don't we write one? Yeah. And then people wrote songs that were like the Stones. Nobody could really write like the Beatles. But there were so many opportunities to do everything they did, but to do it in original form. And I really believe that the, the, the music that we now know is Australian popular music started right then when we just got in and did it because we had nothing to lose. Mm. There was nothing, you know, they, they were going to play it on Australian radio because very often they couldn't get all the other stuff. And they played us and we toured around and, and we created, I think, back in those days, perhaps, let's say, the beginning of it all. The good thing about it back then was that, uh, you know, there was a countdown and there was sounds and there was other... Uh, you know, music shows and there was morning shows and, you, you know, you appear, you appear on television back then and you're assured of a sell-out, uh, sell-out night, you know, on the Monday night after you do the show. That's right. And as you know, and, you know, the Go Show and Happening 70 and all those... Oh, oh, what was the other one, the, the miming one? Up, up, uh, up, oh, commotion. Commotion, yeah. Made stars out of people like Tony Healy and all those cool guys. Oh, no. yeah. and, and, and he's still living. He's still living on that. You know right. that. I know, but he still looks the same. That's what pisses me off. He does. Exactly. Yes. I don't know what. I don't know what he drinks, but I'd like some of it. <laughs> I've tried all the things he drinks, and it doesn't work like that on me. But here's here's what's really, here's what's really interesting. Um, it used to be shot because it was the cheapest, as you know, the stupidest. The stupidest, uh, sorry, cheapest um, studio time you can get was on the weekends, and the very mm. cheapest was Saturday morning and Sunday morning. Nobody wanted. So they, whoever the producers were, you probably remember, whoever they were, they would book like three hours on a Saturday morning starting at 7 o'clock. Now, most of us had played a gig at midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning or whatever, and then we'd go straight to Channel O, as it was then, out in Nanawati, which was miles from anywhere that we played at. And we'd all arrive there, and most of the people were still awake. Most of the people didn't go home and have four hours sleep and get up. They just went there, and we'd hang around, and da, da, da. But what often happened was, the, 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 so let's say the Master's Apprentices, they'd, they'd arrive, but only four of them would arrive. 
not all of them. So the bass mm. player wouldn't arrive. He'd, I don't know, maybe he'd gone out with a lady or maybe he'd passed out in his car or something or whatever. We won't and mention the uh, the bass player. No, please don't. <laughs> but, or any of them, actually. Yes. But so the producers would come out and go, okay, how many Masters Apprentice have we got? And they'd say, oh, we've only got four or three or whatever it was. And then the producer would turn around and go, you, your bass, you, your acoustic guitar. And they'd take people from other acts. Fantastic. <laughs> now think about this. All these little fans, all these little kids would watch these shows religiously. Mm. And there was, and so they'd go on but and they'd look at the Master's Apprentices and their favourite Master's Apprentice wasn't in the band. <laughs> A guy from the group was in the band. Yeah. And they'd be devastated, you know, they just couldn't handle it. So all of this dreadful angst went on every Saturday morning. In actual fact, it was just because people didn't turn up. It's bad. I love it. Well, you, you, you missed out the most important part there, Brian, because the night before, you would have done probably five shows at five different venues. That's right. Finishing at one or two o'clock in the morning. That was that was the heavy load that you had because the, the, the scene was so vibrant. Yes, A, it was so vibrant, and B, we never did more than 30 minutes. Yes. Actually, we would do an early gig at 7.30. We'd open in St Kilda somewhere. We'd drive to Nunawading. We'd do a mid one there. And then later on, in the evening, we'd head into town and we'd do the something time or catch or something like that. Yeah. So we, even though we only did a, an hour and a half in total, we probably did two hours on the road. Yeah. And we played in front of all kinds of people. And and that was going on all around Melbourne. Yeah. So the, the 7.30 guys would be 9 o'clock somewhere else. The 9 o'clock guys would be back in the in the seven thirty slot, but later on. So if you know what I mean. Yeah. So yeah. these kids would go to places like Q Club and Opus and things like that, and they would they get to see four or five bands in the, in a night. And these weren't just bands; mm. these were bands that had hit records in the charts and everything. It was just the most dynamic time. I, I'm so glad that I actually got to live through that, participate through that. Because I don't know that the music has become, I don't know that music has stayed that personal and stayed that intimate. I think, unfortunately, we've drifted away from that model a bit, but it was a truly wondrous time to be in a rock band. Well, Brian Cadd, it was also a great time for viewers, and I sat up in Brisbane and consumed every minute of uptight, happening 70, and that whole excitement of all the Australian bands got me into radio and eventually got me onto Countdown, which is a show that Molly and I loved pushing Australian music and trying to get it up there with the world music. And I think that that is reasonably unique uh, in the sense that the English shows had a choice of getting Americans coming over on tour and they were on their thing. And then the Americans would see the English people coming over to America and they'd be on their shows. Mm. We were so far away that people like you guys who who had local shows with enormous ratings focused almost entirely on Australian acts. I can remember I was living in Los Angeles and I came back and I saw the first countdown, not the first one, but the first one I saw. And it was a lot of acts that I didn't know because I'd been living in America for a while. But every one of them were superstars. They were all Australian. Every now and again, you'd have Elton on or something. But most of the time, they were fabulous Australian acts. And I think 
Because you count them, count that a lot of things going for it, and there's a lot of things we should be really thankful for. But if there's one thing that we should be really thankful for, it is in that time period, after the 60s and 70s and whatever, Countdown consolidated the concept that Australia had its own indigenous, not indigenous, but its own rock scene and pop scene and didn't really need anyone else much. They had it all going on and were making incredible records by incredible bands and incredible artists. And I think that was a peculiarly powerful time in Australian show business. So, mate, you've written a lot of songs. Do you know how many songs you've written over the journey? My publisher told me it's a bit over 400. That is incredible. <laughs> it's a lot of concentration for an old bloke. Because let me tell you that it's really more about the percentages. Because, and it's probably true for you know most of my contemporaries. Certainly, I would imagine people like Ross Wilson and Russell and, and Camilleri certainly would have written within that kind of number. But it's all about the fact that in the end of the day, a handful of them become popular and become successful. And that's what keeps you going always. It's the fact that, that out there, there are people that know your kids, you know, my little song kids. And they they bought them and they know the words and they come along and see us because they know they're going to hear them. And that's the ancient bargain, if you like, that has always existed between... Oh, that's a good phrase. I might use that again. Um, between audiences and performers. And, you know, you give on one side of the life and they give back on the other side of the life. As long as that can continue, music will always have a fabulous place in history. Hi, this is Brian Cat, and you're listening to Gavin Wood's Countdown Podcast. Well, the beautiful thing about Brian Cad music is you can still hear it on the radio. There are lots of acts and lots of songs that have, you know, been passed by but Brian Cadd is still up there on the radio, still being played. You're still relevant, and I love you, mate, and I, I thank you so much for your time today on the uh, on this Countdown podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so glad we, uh, we covered all the bits that we were going to cover, or some of the bits anyway. It's great that in this time of, that we're in, which is God knows what at this point, that, that, that our industry is one of the industries, probably because it's a public, kind of industry, you know, it's got fans and people that look after, look after us and look out for us. But it seems like we just never laid down, did we? Well, from the beginning, we just said, okay, well, we can't be with you, but cop this, I'm singing on an iPhone, there you go, you know, and then gradually all these wonderful podcasts and all these things started to, to rise up. And I think as long as the audience feels like they're connected, and that we're all in this together, which is a hackneyed phrase, but it's true, I think our industry's safe. And when we are finally safe physically enough to do it again, I would be amazed if it's not amazing at that point. Well, we're all looking forward to seeing you on the uh, upcoming APIA Tour 2021, May, June next year. And I'm sure if you go to uh, to the website, to, uh, to the APIA uh, show uh, you can get your tickets and uh, book. I don't know whether tickets are open yet, but uh, we'll certainly let you know, and you'll see with, through all the usual agencies. But before you go, Brian Cad, I have ten questions for you. Oh no! It's the top ten. Question number one: uh, Who inspired you to make music? I would say it had to be my auntie Margaret, my mother, and Jerry Lee Lewis. Question number two: What have you learned 
over your musical journey? I've learned to be incredibly focused. I think it's really important that if you're in this business, you have to really be in it. You can't sort of be a bit in it and also be a ski instructor or, you know, a sous chef or a juggler. You have to be in the music business. And, and I think patience, because you're not going to turn everybody on instantly. It's going to take sometimes a long time. So focus, be patient. And the third thing, and I really mean this one, one of the things that's kept me in the business for 50 years is the fact that I've been able to diverse. So instead of just, not just, but instead of being a singer-songwriter or a piano player singer or whatever, I've also learned how to be an engineer and a producer and I've written music for films and jingles and things. Now, there's a lot of us that do that, and they're the ones that are still in the business. I think diversity and, and perseverance are the two big ones. Question number three in the top ten. What was the effect of Countdown to your career? I would reverse that and say, what was the effect of Molly on my career? Um, okay. Molly, Molly and I started back at the Angle Season Life Saving Club in 1966 when he was actually the roadie for the group. Now, as far as I know, I only ever saw him carrying drinks. He never carried anything else, but he was officially <laughs> our roadie. <laughs> it's true, it's true. You know, but he couldn't plug an amp in or anything like that. But he didn't have to. He was just the vibe. And, and then, I, you know, in the 70s, as you know, I went away. And when I came back in the 80s, there was this phenomenon that was counting. And, you know, you guys, you and him and the others. And what it represented to me then, as I think I just said a little while ago, it represented the, the coalescence of Australia, true Australian pop music, contemporary music. You know, as I said to you before, I think that represented the, perhaps the moment when we totally became our own industry and didn't need anybody else. And, and the only other thing I have, the only other thing I have to say is that I'm not sure that I was ever really happy about the fact that he made me play Christmas carols on a rock and roll show. But that aside, you are a fabulous Santa Claus. Thank you so much. Do yourself a favour. Take the stress away from moving home. Contact whitegloveMover.com.au. Next, Molly with Humdrum. Hi, this is Ian Molly Morgan with my dear, dear friend Gavin Wood with his Countdown podcast. Brian Cad has been a friend of mine for a long, 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 long time. I will say this, that without Brian and his amazing talent with, as a keyboard player and even his voice, if he hadn't existed and been there at that time when I was producing The Real Thing, uh, for Russell Morris, the real thing would never have happened without him. And what he's done in his own life, with his own bands and everything like that, he just streams of talent and is such a giving guy and it's very, very funny. Very naughty at times, but very, very funny. Question number five. Name three dinner guests, dead or alive. Oh, yes. Keith Richard, absolutely. Napoleon and Wyatt Earp. And the reason why I, I selected Wyatt Earp, the other two are fairly obvious, but the reason I picked Wyatt Earp is because I'm actually related to him. I only found this out recently. His, his, yes, this is true. His father, Nicholas Earp, married a cad, a girl. No. Yes. Yes. Woo-hoo. That's incredible. 
Yeah. Well, see that that's your that's your that's you being drawn back to the states all the time, isn't it? See, you know, I, I've I've been on and off here for thirty, forty, thirty years, probably on and off. Um, and, and part of that has no, but I still think half of that has to do with the fact that American music has meant so much to me. I mean, I live in Woodstock. Woodstock is where the band lived. Woodstock's where Van Morrison, where Gillen, where Hendrix lived. You know, it's not easy to deny, and I wouldn't, that all those kind of influences really affect how I behave and what I do and where I live. And, you know, I, I adore Australia and, and Australia, I'm, I'm in Australia all the time, touring and I've got, you know, house there and I live there part of the time. But I do get dragged back to America from time to time. And I think it's probably because of how much I think of American music in terms of how it relates to me. No, it's wider putting a gun to your head. That's what it is. That's what it is. <laughs> no, it's his mother. <laughs> okay, question number six. What is your favourite song to perform live? It depends on how you look at it. If I, if I look at it in terms of an audience reaction, it's obviously going to be Sunshine or, or Ginger Man. In terms of performance... One of the great one of the great songs for me to sing is one that I look forward to every night. I really love singing Don't You Know It's Magic. I wish I could sing it like Platinum, but I can't can't really. But I, I it's a it's an emotional song and it's got an enormous range. It's very powerful, so I enjoy singing that. And the other song that I love is not one of mine. It's a, it's a song by the Rolling Stones, and Chris Barlow had the hit with it. But I think it's one of the most beautiful songs they wrote, they've ever written. It's a song called Out of Time. And I do... Yeah, your voice is perfect And for I that. do it also with um, Russell. When he and I do shows together, we do it as a duo, as a duet. And it's truly an emotional song that I really enjoy. Fantastic song. All right, let's move on to question number seven. What is the most trouble you've ever gotten into? It's with Glenn Shorick and almost everywhere. <laughs> Good answer. I can tell you we got in trouble in Nashville. I can tell you we got in trouble in Darwin. I can tell you we got in trouble in East Cheam, in London. And we just happened. We just happened to be that couple, those two blokes. You're, you're two naughty boys. And if we could yeah. just go home after a gig, none of this would happen. And unfortunately, we can't. Yes. And wouldn't life be boring? I know. And if I had to pick a second culprit, it would be Max Merritt. But Truly, I've been touring with Shorek since since 1969, and it's been absolutely dreadful the whole time. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, number eight in the countdown of questions. If you could change anything about the music industry, what would you do? Well, actually, it's quite simple. What I'd like to do, and this will never happen because we can't ever go back, but as I said to you before, we were discussing the brashes Saturday morning immediacy yep. of the product and the artist and the audience all being in the same little you know, universe. And mm. at a time when, when audiences really, really were music fans, and as you said, now they're not music fans. They might be music fans, but they're also gaming fans and streaming fans and da-da-da and thing and thing. So mm. they're pulled mm. in about eight different ways. Sometimes I hanker for the days when there were just true music fans and true music product out there. And everyone bought the record and learned it and went along and watched everyone play. That's what I like. Hmm. Yeah, the simpler times, mm. yeah. 
Question number nine. What What's the best show that Brian Cadd has ever done? I don't know. It depends on him. Bo- bootleg family yeah, show? Oh, well, well, perhaps the best show I've, I've, that I've done that had the biggest impact on all of us was we, were, we, were, we did Spokane in 1974. Uh, we did the, the Expo 74. And we, we, we've right. never been out of Australia before um, it to play in, in, in the Bootleg family. And we did a show with Terry Bedell in Spokane, Washington. That was an official show, and it was an amazing, amazing evening. And I think it was great for us because, you know, we'd just come off Ginger Man and everything, and we were over there playing, and the audiences really liked us. But it was also the fact that we were representing Australia at a magnificent, yeah. great big expo. Yeah. It was just a big thrill. Well, the last question in the top ten of questions in the Countdown podcast, Brian Cadd, what have you learnt and what would you pass on to a young, hopeful musician? I think it's about like what I said before. If if I had to to just say the one thing that I've learnt, it probably is perseverance. It's the the concept that, that you can't expect everyone out there to give you your dream. You have to go for it. Yeah. You have to go out there and get it. You can't sort of say, I've just written this fabulous song, here it is, love it. They don't. You've got to go out there and sell it and be that person and have them fall for it. And I know, like you do, we both know great, great artists and great, great writers and singers who have fallen by the wayside on the way because they just yeah. haven't had the... And it's not their fault, I'm just saying. They haven't had the the, the, the stick with the dividy, you know. They haven't kept at it. Yeah, yeah. The drive, the drive, and the tenacity to keep on going. Mm. It's a it's a tough it's a tough thing, isn't it, to get out of bed and be positive every day? Well, you would have found it in your career. I mean, when you first started in radio, it wasn't that you were going yeah. to that radio station then. It was you knew that you could go to another one and a bigger one and a bigger one, but you mm. had to do mm. it. They weren't going to come looking for you. You had to go. That's very true. Yeah, you've got to do the live shows. You've got to do the country the country stages. You've got to tour. You've got to do all the hard yards. Yeah. Well, Brian, it's been absolutely fabulous talking to you. you you've made my dreams come true. Oh. Thank you, mate, for, the, for your time and generosity. Oh, my great pleasure. And enjoy Melbourne despite the weather and whatever else is happening. And above all, you should all stay safe. It ain't worth it. Good on you, Brian. See you, mate. Gavin Wood's Countdown podcast was thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives.